Well, good evening again. Wait a minute. We can't do that. The sun hasn't even gone down yet. That's all right. I won't make you yell. It's good to see you all. It's good to see you all. Um, this morning we spoke about two of ten points under the title of a biblical model for manhood. If that sounds too fancy, I'm sorry. Maybe you can come other. What the Bible says about men, you could do that as well. Um, the, the reason for doing this message is because there is a need for uh, instruction on manhood, and, and there's a need for, for men and to set an example for men coming after them. And I think it's important that even on things that might seem simple in life, we'd be able to go back to the scriptures and say, here's how we derive these concepts. Uh, because if we, don't, if we can't do that, then people will get the idea we're sort of making things up just because we want the world to look a certain way. Um, we suggested two points, which gave me the job of finishing the other eight tonight. Uh, the two points, two, uh, two points that have, that have gone into our biblical model of manhood would be the first one, that real men understand that they're not an accident. They start with the worldview that includes in it the existence of God and all the implications that flow from that. If God isn't there, then everything changes. If God is there, everything changes. That is a very simple-sounding statement, but it is profound. And uh, that statement really only struck me with force probably in my 30s. I mean, I grew up around believers. Um, I, I went to a secular school, secular college, two secular colleges. Um, but just for some reason at that point in my life, it really struck me with force, unlike earlier in my 20s or teens or any other point in my life. And uh, I don't know what will happen after this, but if God is there, everything changes. Implications for absolutely everything. It's, it's the foundation of many decisions that we make, we just don't realize that. The second point that we suggested um, is that man is created in God's image. Man bears the image of God. And we said this is true for men and women, but we talked about that. Um, man represents God was the title that he used. A real man represents God. And by real, I mean not just to use a cliche idiom, a real man, but to say a, a, a man that is from a biblical perspective. Because you have cultures in the world that have all kinds of clearly set boundaries for manhood and boyhood, uh, and even sort of the mentor status in society, an older man. But we want um, not just clear boundaries or a lack thereof. We want what the scripture says, assuming that God is communicating the scripture. And I'll say this again. I said it this morning. Why I'm using the word model is for this reason. If, if we believe God created man and everything was good in the beginning, then what God did and what God set up when he made the first man has implications for what God wants and intends. And so we can use that and unpack that. Also, when asked about marriage and divorce... When asked about the roles of men and women, both our Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul went back to the original creation. So we're just following their example. And if we, if we were given a message on a biblical model of womanhood, what would we do? Presumably, we'd go back to the beginning and say, well, when God created the woman, what, you know, what was going on? What did he do? How did he do it? Presuming that it's 
it was very good. And then we would build on that progressive revelation, other truths we find in Scripture. We could start there. Here we come to the third point. Uh, a real man influences his world. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. You'll notice that a lot of what I'm saying comes from just a couple verses in Genesis chapter 1, reading from the New King James this evening. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, so far we've built our model off of these phrases. God said, let us make. Okay, that implies intentionality. Man was not an accident. Two, our image, just the next clause in the sentence. That's where we got the second point. The third one comes next. Okay, let him have dominion, uh, verse 26, and let them have dominion. And I should say, we have to be careful with the scriptures. And somebody said this morning, well, what about the women? Well, several of these things also bear true for women as well. And so the dominion was something that was given to Adam, but it was shared in by Eve. And I have a slide for that. But anyhow, a real man influences his world. Uh, for the Lord's, you know, the Lord's will. So when Adam was given dominion over the earth, it's very interesting. God gave him a sphere of rule. And God said, have dominion, rule the earth. I think Eric Sauer had a book in his series titled King of the Earth, where he talks about the creation of man and the, real, the original nobility of man. It's an interesting set of works by German authors, one of the earlier dispensationalists, Eric Sauer. Um, very dense books, interesting to, to, to look through. Um, God's original goal was that man would influence the world around him according to the will of God. So how did that work? What happened was man was given dominion, and then God walked with Adam in the garden, right? And God would give Adam instruction. But it was in God's will, for some reason, that, that man would do things on earth. Not that God would tell him everything to do. Man would be a puppet, but that man would have dominion on earth. And it's a very interesting thing to look at the biblical record and see how God constantly chooses to mediate, that means to work through humans. Lots of things God could do, yet he chooses to do them through mankind. And that gets down again to the purpose of God for creating humanity. Now, I put this phrase here, thy will be done on earth. Now, where does that come from? That comes from the prayer that our Lord taught the disciples in the Gospels in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 6. And it comes from the phrase, thy kingdom come, you guys are good. Good job. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and that in one sense is the essence of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. Okay, And you can look at the, the general universal kingdom, the millennial kingdom, those different things. But the essence of God's kingdom is when his will is being done. The ultimate expression of that will be seen where? In the millennial kingdom when Christ, who is God, reigns on earth, both man and God. Then you'll really see God's will being done to the extent possible when there's still sin on the earth. Okay? So that's where that comes from. And that's what God's original intention was. Create an earth, have mankind on it, his will would be done everywhere on earth. Straightforward and simple. Of course, that didn't happen. Um, man in, in, in sinned, he made a decision to disobey God, and lost his dominion. Now, we can't go into that topic, but if you 
do a study on the kingdom, you'll see statements how that Satan claims to have dominion. Who is the prince and the power of the air? Who is the god of this age? It's not man. It's Satan. And when he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Why? For they're mine. They've been given unto me. And the Lord doesn't dispute that claim. He simply disputes the reality of the fact that we're only to worship God. It's an interesting thing. Um, so man was given the task of, of, of having influence in the world. So today, when we think about mankind, we can think that God's original intention was that we would be people who would do his will. It's very simple. But it's nice to connect that with the creation. As we talk to our young men, um, moms, as you have boys, dads, as you lead your sons, young men, as you become men, men, as you're men yourself, we just ask the question, is that a reality in my life? Am, am I fulfilling that? Am I bearing the image of God, the second point, and, and am I getting the things that God wants done, done around me as much as is in my strength? Am I pushing for that and striving for that and working for that? Um, because that's one of the original reasons that God created mankind, uh, to, to, to rule on earth and to have his will done on earth. Um, now, we've suggested that the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of all these things. And one of the chief ways that the Lord Jesus Christ influenced the world was by doing what? By being the Savior of the world. John, 1 John 4, 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. I mean, how much greater can one influence the world than to respond and react and push back, it's probably an understatement, against the effects of sin and the fall, and to redeem the fallen world and the fallen humanity for God the Father. Uh, I am the light of the world. Uh, go you into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus Christ, to the greatest extent, influenced the world. And, and if you talk about dominion, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here is one who is gaining back and who will gain back the dominion lost under the fall. That is the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And speaking about the resurrection, make some statements about the kingdom. All right, we're just talking about characteristics of biblical manhood, a model for biblical manhood. A real man knows that he is not an accident. He is created. A real man represents God, bears his image. A real man influences the world around him, uh, an implication of dominion. Obviously, there's limits today in this age, but um, the principle, I think, is still there. 1 Corinthians 15 says this, reading from verse number 20. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those who are believers, they've died. First fruits means in the Old Testament times, they would reap the first fruits of their harvest. They'd give them to the Lord. It was, a, it was a way of putting him first. But they were also saying, Lord, let the rest of this harvest be like this first best that I'm giving to you. Okay? So Christ is the first fruits. What happens to the first, hopefully will happen to the rest in terms of their offering. Uh, literally here, what happens to Christ, the first one from the dead, will happen to those that are Christ's. Uh, later on. So he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Why? For since by man came death, Adam's sin, death came, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, that's a whole category, all die. Even so, or in the same way, in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each one in his order, 
Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end. Here's the verse we're going for. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. What's the last enemy? Verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. That's God speaking of the Messiah Christ. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him, that's God, is accepted. God is not part of the all things that is under Christ. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. There's a lot there. By the way, when we're reading the scripture, this has statements about prophecy, about eschatology. You'll notice that there are several things that are squished together here. So if you just read this verse in isolation, you get the idea that there's sort of the resurrection and then the consummation, and that's it. And the millennial kingdom isn't here. The prophets do that all the time. But not every passage about the future has to stop and mention every, every single thing that's going to happen. Otherwise, it would just be very redundant. We want all that the scripture says on a topic, so we can't just build our eschatology from one verse. And so when we read this verse, we don't panic or we don't you know, sort of get bewildered when it says, um, you know, there's, there's, there's the, the coming of Christ and then there's the end um, because other passages tell us that there's more there. But the point is simply this, that Jesus Christ, uh, I'm really kind of pointing at, First Corinthians 15, will we'll regain what was lost in the fall and as a man and ultimately restore that to the Father. Um, so a real man influences his world that is a reflection of uh, the, the topic of dominion. Um, here's another point. Turn to Genesis. Now we're going to go to chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Hopefully, hopefully I'm going a little faster. Uh, I should tell you all, I give um, more and more these days, I tell people about myself while I'm preaching. I don't practice my messages. I just study them and preach, and I just, I've always done it that way. So I go with the time that's available, and maybe I should change that. But uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says this. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. It'd be nice to read more for context, but that's the verse, okay? He created man outside the garden or elsewhere, created a garden for him, and put him in it, okay? And everything in the garden was his. And God also exposed himself to a real relationship and real obedience by putting a tree in the garden to test man to see whether man would choose for God or not. Um, Genesis 2.15, we see that work pre-existed the fall. God gave Adam a task to do. There are at least two tasks we see here, okay? Uh, the first was to tend the garden or to cultivate the garden. Um, another thing that we see later in verse 20, let's read actually from verse number uh, 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him or a helpmeet for him. Okay, this is the first, it's not good in the creative act. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And he makes man alone and says, wait a minute, there's a problem here. This is not good. And then it's, after saying that, it continues to talk about the work of man. 
Out of the ground, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Isn't that interesting? So here we have a creation that has, forgive the word, the capacity to categorize taxonomy. I mean, this is the human intelligence here. I mean, what kind of a mind does that take? Think of the, I don't know how many animals were originally created, but think of the capacity of Adam, not just to uh, name them, but to, to really give them names that implied something. You know, he's not, this is a booba, this is a doodah. That's me and my conversation with the two-year-old daughter, you know. He's making these words up. I mean, obviously he gave meaning because when we study older languages, we see that a lot of times a name implies the character of something. And he would have to communicate this to other people. And what a mind he would have had. Could you do that? I mean, if you, were, you had to rename all of the animals that you know of, what kind of a task would that be? It's just interesting to think about. And God wanted to see what Adam would name them. I mean, God doesn't come to Adam and say, here's all the names you start memorizing. He gives this creative, descriptive task to Adam. I mean, it's interesting to see how God begins to include man in, in work, uh, creative work, interesting work. So work is not part of the fall. Men... So as we talk to our young men, as we talk to men, we could tell them, you know, if you're loafing around too much, you're straying from God's model for mankind. I mean, work is part of the fall, part of the, the, the original creation of, of man, not part of the fall. Um, I've got here, nobody respects a man who won't work. Work is not part of the curse. It was part of paradise. I guess I'm reading everything that I just said. How does this affect retirement? I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying it's interesting to think about. You, you notice that a lot of men, after they retire, oftentimes are, are frustrated. Uh, they, they need to do something. I think it's in God's created, you know, just in our person to need to work. Men get meaning from their work, by the way. Oftentimes, if you ask a man, tell me about yourself, he'll first tell you about his career. I worked at General Dynamics, and, you know, then I did this. Uh, he won't say, I really like hot dogs. Just, you know, he might get there eventually, but he'll tell you about his work or, or school, uh, some of the things he's accomplished. By the way, here's an interesting point that we can give to young men. Cultivate. The word cultivate means to develop, and it's the idea of things being left in a better state than when we got them. And so as a man, when I'm given a sphere of responsibility, whether it's in the local church or out in the workforce... Do I leave what's given to me in a better state than when I got it, if it's possible? Do I cultivate as a man? Men should, I believe, cultivate. If I'm living in a house, if I'm at a place, uh, I have my own home, and things are falling down around me, I should fix them up and tend to them. Cultivate. Um, God gave the garden to Adam to cultivate and to tend it. He gave him work to do. Somebody named Herschel Hobbes, I have no idea who this is, had an illustration, hard workers may still be poor, lazy people will be poor. Um, I'll say that again. Hard workers may still be poor, but lazy people will be poor. And you could think about, what's an example of cultivating something spiritually? Men, what could you cultivate? What, is, what sphere of influence do you have that you could cultivate and invest in and develop and work on? An interesting question. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, 6, 3, verses 6 to 12, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. We set an example for you. 
you ought to follow it. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day. Why? That we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because, and here's a balance for this, because Paul is our one clear example of a committed worker, for example, and sometimes we talk about should a person that's called to the Lord's work full-time, I know we're all believers full-time and serving full-time, but you know what I mean by that, should they carry on some other work? The Apostle Paul did, um, and then now we see some of his reasons for doing that. One example was that he would not be a burden to those that he was planting churches among, but it says, verse 9, it was not because we do not have the right we could have done that. But to give, you in, give, to give you in ourselves an example to imitate, he wanted to teach these new believers what it looked like to work a hard day's work. And that's part of discipleship. It's not just sitting down with people and going through Bible study. That's extremely important. But also bringing them along in everyday life and letting them see what it's like to sweat and to work, you know, to crawl under the house and go up in the attic and work with insulation and and, and, and dig ditches and do all those kinds of things that most of you and, and I had a privilege of doing. And seeing Christian men do those things, do them with quality, uh, how they react when something breaks, how they react when they get hurt, uh, what they do with their money, I mean their time. Uh, Paul wanted to set an example for people that they could imitate. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. What a great statement. This will inform our capacity to interact with, for example, the society around us. It's part of our worldview. Not that we shouldn't be generous. The Lord says the poor you have always with you. But it's God's desire that men work. If we can encourage men to work and help them to do that, that's a good thing to do. Why? Because God created us to work, and a man will not feel healthy and right about himself if he's not working, if you just give him handouts all the time. Not that you never do that for a person, but this should ultimately be a goal. We're generous, we're open-handed, but at some point we have to tell people, listen, we believe God exists, he's created the world, and it's his will for men that they work. Can we help you work? And if a man won't work, and it becomes clear he doesn't want to work, then at some point the handouts need to stop. Because at some point, he's, be going to go, he's going in a different direction than God's will for him as a man. Uh, and that will affect him emotionally and mentally. And uh, we have this example in the Apostle Paul, not just from Genesis. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is our ultimate example of one who worked. He's, he's actually called the servant of, of, of Yahweh, the servant of Jehovah in the prophets. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, the Lord says, Behold, look, look, my servant, here's the one that's going to do my will. Finally, one steps on the scene who's going to do the work and the will of the Lord. Luke 4, 29, it must be about my father's business when he was just, we'd say, almost a preteen, a young man. Uh, John 5, 17 and 19, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. Isn't that a beautiful relationship? The father and the son working together. And in the old world, oftentimes the son would carry on the work of the father. If your father was a shoemaker, you were a shoemaker. If he was a, a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith. And what the father did, you were like and you did too. And so if you said, you are like your father, well, whoever your father is, is an, an indicator of your character. Um, 
John 9, 1 to 5, work while it is still day. And then in John 17, you've heard of that passage as the high priestly prayer of the Lord, right? John 17, why? Well, because in that chapter, the Lord is praying for the disciples and for us as well. But go back and read that chapter. You can read it very beautifully as a, as a steward giving an account of his stewardship. And he says in that process, I finished the work that you gave me to do. Uh, Jesus is cultivating in the ultimate sense. He is bringing the earth back under the dominion of God. It will have been better because he was here and definitely not for the worse. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Men, real men, protect. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Now, if we were at camp or if I was teaching in a classroom like I used to, I could say, stand up. Your brain needs oxygen and water. But people would get real uncomfortable if I did that. Why? Because we don't do that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. What else happened? The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden Here's another word that I, I read quickly past, to tend it and to what? Keep it. Now, Darby has translated the word keep to guard it. So I'm building all, you know, some implications off of this word. Um, the question might be, who was Adam to guard the garden from? Could have been just large animals, you know? You're going to trample all the, you know, you know brontosauri or whatever were there. I don't, I don't know. Um, but, and I'm open to correction on this, I really mean that, this, um, it, it's possible that what was supposed to happen is that when the serpent came into the garden, that Adam was to do something different than he did. Um, I don't know. If that's true, that may be some indicator for the relationship in time between the fall of the angels uh, and and. You know, the creation of the world, obviously, they, they, it might have happened before that, probably. And so when God created man, he knew there was already this, this adversarial element in the universe that might come after his creation. And so he put him in the garden to tend it and to keep it or to guard it. Uh, that's a possibility. I cannot be dogmatic on that. And by the way, I'm always iffy when you meet people and it's this kind of thing that they're always talking about. I remember when I was in a, another state... There was a particular brother of the local church, and he was always talking about these bare fringe issues of Scripture, just all the time. And I'm like, I don't know if it really, really, really means to guard. I don't, you know, there's certain things we just don't know, ultimately. So we emphasize what Scripture emphasizes. And we can bring them up, but we're not dogmatic about them. Um, and so I'm willing to, to be corrected on this. But we have examples of the Lord Jesus Christ protecting and even as men, as we raise young men and, and men, we ought to take that protective role in many different realms of our families. I don't think it's right for a man to be in a situation and not exercise his protecting influence of the people around him. It just, we know instinctively that it's just there's something wrong with that. Not that, not that he has to or uh, he always has to hazard himself, but it just seems right. And that, I think, comes from conscience to step out and to protect um, individuals that, that, that can't protect themselves. I remember when my, my wife and I went on our first, uh, I hope this is an offensive term, our first date. Uh, we were out here in, in the Los Angeles area. I didn't know anything about Los Angeles. 
And uh, we had visited, I think, um, the Getty Museum. And, and so we were going back to the car, and a, a guy's walking up the street, and he starts to whistle at her and, and like, call her. And I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't think about it. I was like, just go ahead and get in the car. And then I went over to him. Now you're thinking, now what did he do? I didn't grow up fist fighting. I didn't grow up, you know, talking trash, to use a technical term. Uh, you know, 13 years of public school. I mean, I, I was a small guy, so I didn't grow up, I didn't do wrestling or any of that stuff. I didn't take martial arts as a kid. Um, and so I went over to him instinctively. I had to do something about this. And I just, I just started to talk about the Lord. And man, he started to back up. Um, and, and honestly, that's been my only tool, and it's happened multiple times. My wife and I were driving through Tampa, and it was uh, Friday night or something, and this guy pulls up in a big truck and rolls down the window and like, looks in, and he says, well, where are you taking her tonight? And I said, well, this is my wife. We both love the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been married together. And I started talking about that. Man, he rolled his window up so fast, and he took off. You, you ought to try that. You know, it's the one thing that the world really doesn't like. You bring Christ into the situation. I'll give you a third example. I, I lived in Texas for three years, and I, was, I used to teach school. I took classes at night, and then I would go home. Uh, and like an overconfident guy, I was in South Dallas, and I thought, well, I need to wash my car. I'm not married. I don't have kids. So you can wash your car at 10 o'clock at night. You know, one of the dudes, do-it-yourself car washes. The lights are on. It's dark there. And I'm washing my car, and I've got this big car, and, you know, kind of nerdy. I wore a tie and stuff. Um, and this guy walks out of the dark with a shotgun, full-length shotgun, and points it right at me and says, get against the car. So, of course, I got against the car. I mean, I didn't, I didn't train in martial arts. That's your moment right there. But I, I didn't have a moment. Uh, <laughs> I got against the car, and, and he, he pulls my wallet out, and he opens up. I had, like, ten bucks. And, um, and he said, uh, is this all the money you got? I said, yeah, I'm just a seminary student. He said, oh, Okay, and he put my money back in my wallet and gave it to me, <laughs> and he walked away. Um, so in my experience, you know, bringing spiritual things into the situation has been helpful. Um, but still, I just, I went down that rabbit trail to bring up just that I, I think it's appropriate for men to protect. Uh, I think that's what's right. Uh, not that women can't protect themselves, and oftentimes when men don't, create an environment of security for women, they will unquestionably step, step forward and make sure they're secure. And that's a dynamic in relationships between men and women. Oftentimes where women are doing a lot of things that may frustrate men, it's because men aren't doing them. And men aren't providing that environment for women. Uh, and that's a whole different issue. But the Lord Jesus Christ is our example of protector. John 10:11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. What's the contrast of the good shepherd? It's the hired shepherd, the hireling. When he sees the wolf coming, what does he do? I'm out of here, man. Sorry. He runs. Not the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Um, and protection ultimately comes out of a sense that others under your care are to be valued more than yourself. Right? And that, that gives a nobility of life. Now it's not a self-centered life. I'm willing to hazard myself for the care of others that are around me. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. Uh, three pictures of, of enemies in the scripture. Revelation 12, 1, the old serpent. Acts 20, verses tw uh, 29, speaks of wolves. So that's a spiritual context. And then ultimately, 1 Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, roams around like a raging or roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Um, 
And so different, different things that you could study in terms of an, an enemy. Uh, going quickly here, obviously not quickly enough, Genesis 2.18. Uh, men were not created to be loners. Genesis 2.18, real men are not loners. Real men uh, protect, real men influence their world, real men cultivate, and real men are not loners. Uh, we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Pretty straight statement. It's not good that a man should be alone. Singleness is not to be equated with isolation. Now, the focus here in Genesis is on, on, on help and on him being alone. Uh, but I, I have, I've stretched that a little bit just from my own experiences and from what we see in other parts of Scripture. Three ways that men are in danger, and this could apply to women as well when they're alone. Um, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12, it talks about relationships. And it says this, interesting, interesting phrase, and this is wisdom literature, so it's a general principle for just for anybody who wants to apply it. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12. Uh, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand them. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, Hebrew poetry was not rhyming words, but essentially rhyming concepts, having concepts that said the same thing twice or said a truth and then the opposite of it. Um, and so it's saying the same thing two ways. Uh, although one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. The writer could have just left it there, but this is Hebrew poetry, and so he says it again, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Genesis 2, verse 18, a man needs companionship. Um, and then I don't know why I put this phrase here, even in Eden, man needed help. I guess that was because it was true. Uh, 2 Samuel 11, what story comes up in 2 Samuel 11? Anybody remember? What king of Israel got into trouble in 2 Samuel 11? David. David. Why was he in trouble? Probably because he was alone in a sense. He had work to do. The time that kings went to war, for some reason, he stayed home. And he was somewhere where he probably knew. I, I, I don't know. I, I tend to think the way men are. I think David knew what he could see from a rooftop. I just, I think that was the case. And there he was, and he was alone, and, and he got into trouble. Men, we are most danger, we are, we, are, we are weakest when we are alone so often in a moral uh, framework, and also in a physical framework. Uh, the Lord sent out the disciples by twos. Emotional support, moral support. Uh, when you do evangelism, yeah, it's just neat sometimes. Another person will just have a completely different perspective, have a completely different personality. There are just so many benefits to, a popular word today is community, to being in a group of people. Accountability is a huge issue. Um, and the Lord Jesus Christ brought men around him. It also has implications for training other people. So here's a little table. Uh, we seek community. I hope that doesn't bother uh, individuals. The scripture doesn't exactly use that word community. It's a catch-all phrase. It uses the term family in the New Testament, and we need to use biblical phrases. But uh, we, we use it to get help avoiding sin. Um, and I'm just going to go quickly here. Because they respect the authority and structures of God that God has put in place, um, someone can hold them accountable, because God has called them to focus on others. People seek to be alone so that they can sin. Men love darkness. The implication is that we're not visible rather than light because their deeds are evil. So they can be their own authority, so they can avoid accountability, and so they can focus on self. Now, those are big generalizations. Okay, I realize that. But there's an element of truth there. 
Our Lord was the ultimate example. Even though he did not need our help, he even brought us along. He even asked men to watch with him in his hour because he was, he was human as well. Um, real men lead. Okay, now, I think we have about five minutes left. Is that, is that the case? Uh, I like to watch. You're like, no. Um, you're like, well, uh-oh, you broke your rule. You're not in Genesis. Well, these passages refer back to Genesis. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Um, we read about headship. This is the, this is the, sort of the, one of the theological points that's behind uh, the discussion of the veiling of, of women. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. How often do we preach on Christ's headship over men? The head of a woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. How can we be without a head when God himself and Christ was under headship? Men and women are under headship. We ought to preach these things in a balanced way. What does headship mean? At this point in my life, I understand headship to be um, making sure that those who are under my authority or or making sure that what God wants to be done gets done among those who are under my authority. It's loving leadership. and I'm exercising uh, authority for God in, in a right sort of way. It's not just, you know, my will be done in a personal domineering sense. Um, headship involves being given authority to make sure God's will is carried out. Trouble came to Eden when Adam stopped leading. Now, I'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I should read that passage as well. I desire, therefore, that men, that's males in the, in the New Testament, uh, in the Greek, Pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, so a sin affects our prayer, without wrath and doubting. Um, In like manner also, now he talks to the women. The women adorn themselves. Women, what do you adorn yourselves with? In modest apparel, okay? It doesn't doesn't spell out types of clothing. Make sure we don't say that types of clothing are mentioned in the Bible. The goal is modesty. I, I loved it one time when a um, a brother of mine, and, and I, I have to be careful because every assembly is autonomous and every assembly puts forward um, you know, their understanding of modesty as they lead. And so I hope I, I don't say something that's not appropriate in the sense. But he said, you know what? The focus uh, is not necessarily on, on, on pants or dresses in the scripture. The focus is on modesty. You can be immodest in all kinds of clothing because you're outlandish or because you're not wearing enough. Modesty at some point attracts attention to yourself and takes it off of what's going on around you. Men can be immodest in certain ways. We can be immodest in our behavior. But we're to adorn, they, the women are adorning themselves uh, with modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Uh, what an interesting verse for our day and age. But which is proper for women professing godliness. What do you want to put on women? Good works. Good works. Be known by your good works more so than by... The, the tag on your shopping, on, on your, you know, your, your handbag, your shopping bag. Clearly, I don't talk about handbags a lot. Um, you know, designer clothing. A lot of times, we're, it's about designer everything. It's just a logo on a bag. Um, and uh, let women learn in silence with all submission. And here we go. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And then he goes... Supra, I hope I'm using that preposition the right way, cultural, above culture, beyond the culture of his immediate area, and he goes all the way back to the garden. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Point one. Point two. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And then Adam sinned open-eyed, undeceived, which is why the scripture says, by one man sin entered, not by woman. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Dave Dixon will explain that verse after the meeting. <laughs> um, so trouble came, to, uh, trouble came to the garden when Adam abdicated his headship. What was God's original plan? God's original plan was that, that uh, man, he gave man dominion. You can't see my mouse, really. Uh, and man would get dominion from God and revelation from God, and he would exercise that over the beast of the field, okay? And then a woman was brought along to share in that after it was given. And thus the phrase, let them have dominion. That was this destruction that God created. And what happened after the fall? Everything was turned upside down. The beast of the field, the serpent, winds up giving revelation and instruction to the woman. And the man shares, he, he, he takes direction from her in that sense. He doesn't exercise dominion. He doesn't guard the garden. And God is absolutely cut out of the picture. Um, it was a complete flip-flop of the original uh, created order. Um, Christ is our example of headship. Ultimately, what we're talking about here is that, that men ought to exercise leadership, not for their own agenda, but for God's, and they ought to do it in a loving way. Who's your ultimate example of, of, of one who is your head? Men, who is our head? The Lord Jesus Christ. Do we mind the Lord Jesus being our head in the sense of an authority? No. Why don't we? Because he loves us. He's died for us. Who is our ultimate example of one who is under authority and under headship? The Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is both our example of one who is under headship and one who is our head. So he's an example for men and women. Uh, it's a beautiful thing to think about and to go into. Um, I'm just going to have to go on here. I'll mention a couple more. Um, uh, real men are faithful. Again, this comes back to marriage, Matthew 19. Uh, when asked about divorce, Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ points them back to uh, in the beginning. Um, faithfulness to our covenants reflects God. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman, and we ask God to enter into that. And there's this phrase in the scriptures, what God has joined together, that no man put asunder. And so when we, in a when we enter into a biblical marriage, we call the God of the Bible to put us together. That's what makes it more than just a day with cake and, and good food, okay? That, that, and more than just a vow. We're actually calling God into this. And so we have a covenant here. We agree to do things. We make these promises. And God is faithful to his covenants. Look at a beautiful phrase in Jeremiah 31. This is a beautiful, beautiful phrase of God's faithfulness to his covenant. Um, Jeremiah chapter 31, and we read this in verse number 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the seas and its, its waves roar. That's a beautiful picture. Um, I don't know that the Bible is teaching that God is literally, you know, this anthropomorphism, you know, the God whose spirit has a hand and is stirring the waters, but clearly God designed uh, the relationship between the moon and the waves and those types of things and the tides. But the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, listen to this, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, 
then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. That's beautiful faithfulness. God is faithful to his own promises, even when Israel didn't deserve it. And that's a model for us in our marriages, Um, the faithfulness. Unfailing agape love is the basis of stability and reconciliation in relationships. I wish, there's a whole extra messages on this issue, maybe we'll give them in the future, about how that as believers we have something that can heal in its forgiveness, in its reconciliation, in its faithfulness. And it's one of the most powerful things that we have in relationships and in society. The one thing that can put out the flame and, and, and can stop the tension uh, in any kind of relationship. Uh, and we have in Christ the motivation to do that. Uh, obviously, Christ is our example of faithfulness. When the disciples denied him publicly with cursing, what did he do? Did he, did he kick him to the curb? No, he went back and restored uh, Peter. Uh, biblical love is not based on performance. It's based on the desire to give in. Uh, because that's what God does for us. Uh, real men leave and cleave. This will be a point for you guys that aren't married yet. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 20 to 24. Um, and I'll just make the statement. The, the Lord says when he, uh, the, the writer says, when, when he describes Eve being brought to Adam, he says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and, and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And you'll always hear people in the wedding messages saying you have to leave and cleave. And that's, there's a truth in that. And here's a suggestion how do you know when it's time to get married, men? Well, one question can be, do you have the capacity to leave your parents' house and to cleave to your wife in that sense? If you can't do that, then there's a problem. Well, why is it a problem? Because how can you exercise biblical headship if you're in another man's home? And now you're the head of, 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 of your family, and you're trying to do things, and your dad, who's always told you what to do and still thinks you're 13 when you're 33, says, you ought to do this. At some point, you can't do that if you're still under his headship in his home. Not to say that we should never find ourselves in that situation. I mean, it happens. But ideally, that's one way to know maybe when, um, when, it's, when it's time. Uh, real men delight in God. Adam was to interact with God, to walk with God. I was created to seek God, Acts 17. We were to grow up after God if we can find him. The meaning of life, anybody asks you, comes in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The meaning of life is captured in knowing the God who created us. Uh, we know God through creation, through salvation, and through his word. Real men delight in God. The Lord Jesus Christ delighted in the Father. Um, the we have a little pattern from John, uh, the, the, the uh, upper room ministry. Knowing Christ through his words uh, leads to loving. Uh, loving leads to obeying him. Obeying him leads to abiding in him. Abiding leads to fruit bearing, and fruit bearing leads to glorifying God. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. You're wishing you could write that down, don't you? Uh, <laughs> you can, here, here, real quick. I'm out of time. Wow. Um, I'll just I'll state the other, the other ones. And I can give this slide. Uh, to anybody who wants it, the slide said. Uh, thank you all for your patience. Uh, real men love, and that comes obviously from uh, a number of verses. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he, he first loved us. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is obviously the ultimate example of that uh, because God is love. So 
I just obviously skipped through some of these different things, but I, I hope that you'll appreciate uh, some of these points of real manhood, that real men love, that real men lead, that real men protect, that real men influence their world for God, that real men cultivate, that real men uh, represent God, that real men know that they aren't an accident. Uh, they're general concepts, but boy, are they core for a rich life. And to be able to say to people, this is why we can say you should do these things, because we find them in Scripture. Thank you for your time. Let's just close in a word of prayer. I've gone over. Our Father in heaven, we ask in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would help us as men to be biblical men, to be real men, to teach those who are following us to be real men, and not just to take an excuse that because we're of a certain age that by default we're what we should be, but that we would be ever-growing like the wise man in Proverbs who's wise because of his willingness to receive instruction and to keep growing. Lord, help us to be real men. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.